Nehemiah chapter 10 this evening, our journey through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. While we're turning there, if you are here with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. If you just wave and get their attention, they will get a Bible into your hands so that you can follow along with your own eyes. And if you don't own a Bible, then that Bible is yours. Just take it home and make a good friend of it. Uh, just a moment here. There we are. My stopwatch. You don't realize I have a stopwatch up here. You say, for all the good it does you. But I do have one. Well, we remember when we come to Nehemiah chapter 10, that the wall around Jerusalem, the physical wall, has been completed by now. Uh, Ezra the priest has turned the people to God in a great revival centered upon the word of God. The people, upon hearing the word of God, are struck by their history as God's people, of how gracious and good he has been to them in spite of their sins. And as a result of that, in verse 38 of chapter 9, they desire to make a covenant with God to rededicate their lives as God's people to the Lord. They can't speak for the previous generations of God's people, but they come to a place in their own lives where they say, we want to to make a stand for our generation, our hour in human history, and we want that to be known as a season historically where your people walked with you in the land of Israel. And so God is a God of second chances. They want that second chance, and so they desire to make this covenant with God. You notice verse 38. And because of all of this, we make a sure covenant, and we write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. And then we get here into uh, chapter 10, and there is a listing in the first uh, 27 uh, verses here of chapter 10 of those who put their seal upon the document. And we see in a seal in those days, they didn't really sign uh, the, the document here. Um, sometimes maybe you think about olding. England, you know, and where you would have a letter that would be in the form of a, well, be in an envelope, and then they would close it and put wax on there and then put a seal in, usually a signet on a ring or something that was unique to you, and it indicated who had sent this letter and and who was behind the letter. And so in the same way they would do that, they had these signet rings and that were an emblem of their own life or their clan, and so they then uh, put their seal on the document. We notice in verse 1, Nehemiah is mentioned uh, as the governor, and then the remaining names listed there through verse 8, those are the priests that signed, uh, sealed the covenant, and then it goes on in verses um, uh, 9 to, uh, in verse 9, the Levites, and then in verse 10 on through to verse 27, a listing of uh, the brethren, and so probably very, uh, the uh, patriarchal heads of significant kind of families among the children of Israel. They came in alongside as an example to all of the people. We're making this commitment now to God. And then we're told in verse 28, now the rest of the people, so all of the people that weren't leaders and and all, uh, they they came, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nephinim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands 
to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. And so this is kind of the common people. This is the blue-collar group and, and their children. They look and they say, see their leaders making this commitment on their behalf to the Lord, but they don't want it just to be some a mediator kind of relationship with God through some group of people. They want to express their own desire to commit their lives to the Lord all the way down to their children that could understand what was being done. And these joined with their brethren, their nobles. And they entered into the covenant, entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. So when it talks about a curse here, basically what they're doing is they're all saying, well, we don't have a signet ring uh, to add to that seal. Uh, and, and that was kind of a solemn thing to add your uh, seal of approval, so to speak, to something. They said, we don't have that, but we are entering into this covenant with the same kind of sobriety and seriousness that everyone else is. And so they put themselves under kind of this uh, curse if they disobeyed. And the curse is, is the idea of um, uh, kind of... Uh, spoken of in the book of Deuteronomy where God speaks of the fact that he, he will bless those that obey him and that then that he will curse those that disobey him in the sense that the path of disobedience is a path that's already cursed and then he'll add his own judgment or discipline to it. So this was, this was the single greatest way for them to communicate their seriousness about this commitment to now walk with God. God, I can't do anything about my mom and my dad. I can't do anything about my brothers and my sisters. I can't do anything about those who lived and died for you in the 1920s or in the 1800s or in the 1700s. All I can do is make a commitment for myself. And so this is the commitment that I want to make. And you notice in verse 29 toward the end there, it speaks of all the commandments, the ordinances, the statutes, and those are all different words for the Word of God. And it was their way of communicating, we're going to obey your Word of God, your Word, Lord, no matter what it says. And, so there's, a, and there's a great push today, and this is important for us to realize, there's a very, very strong push today and it's stronger in the younger generation. I don't mean youth. Uh, I mean early adults than it is in the older generation. But this kind of idea that we can pick and choose what we're going to obey and what we're not going to obey from God's Word. And what we're going to believe, what we're not going to believe, what's acceptable to us, what isn't acceptable to us. And, and uh, we're going to form a new kind of Christianity off of our own wisdom and our own selfishness and this kind of thing. And so they came in and they said, listen, we've been there and we've done that. <laughs> it's called our history of rebellion because that always, that always leads to uh, compromise. It leads then to carnality. It leads to disobedience. And then it leads to captivity and bondage to sin. So it's a thing that they looked at and they said, listen, we're not interested in that anymore. Been there, done that. We want to know what it feels like to obey you wholeheartedly. And so that's the commitment that we make uh, to you. You notice in verse 1, Nehemiah is listed there first. Probably He was probably thrilled as the governor to be able to model this. Uh, you also notice that as you go through that list of the priests, 
that Ezra is not mentioned, and it's probably because uh, Ezra was of the family of Sarai, which is, who is mentioned in verse 2. So though he was a scribe and a priest, there was a patriarch that was higher than him in terms of the family, and that patriarch represented the family. Now they come in uh, making this commitment uh, to, uh, to the Lord here, they uh, then begin to address some specific areas of, uh, of, uh, of God's law that they had kind of been notorious in disobeying through their history. So they don't just make this commitment to God like this big, gigantic, general terms. God, I promise that I'm going to obey you in every and any and always and this kind of a thing and, and this big, gigantic thing that floats up. Uh, to the Lord. They knew themselves better than that. And uh, so they then committed now specifically to obeying God in areas where they had historically been very disobedient and the most disobedient uh, to the Lord. And so they were going to read this kind of list of things that they commit to do to the Lord. And it's not just some kind of random list of examples of what they're committing uh, to the Lord. They recognize that from the law of Moses, these are the commandments that we have most regularly violated uh, in the past. It is really good to commit ourselves to obeying the Lord and everything that he commands in his word, that conviction of the Holy Spirit and that prompting of the Holy Spirit to do that. But uh, very often it's good to follow their example and then to address specific sins in our life. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus gave us an individual, he gave us a prayer to pray to the Lord, and it's a daily prayer. It's a model for prayer. You don't have to pray it, but it's a wonderful model for prayer. And it's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so forth and so forth. And a line in that particular prayer uh, declares, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And one of the great things to do when you come, if you use that as a model for your prayer, is it's kind of like before we head out the door in the morning um, that we're recognizing we're heading out into a world that is full of temptation. We are not oblivious to that temptation. We're heading out into a world that is filled with deception. We are not automatically protected from, from that. We're susceptible to that. And so we don't just pray mindlessly through there, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I, I tell you, I, can, I could say the Our Father like grease lightning when I was in a particular religious institution to fly through those and, and, and did it rather mindlessly in my youth. But that's not what's intended. The idea is to then stop when we come to that line and think about the sins that most often trip us up. And so whether that's covetousness, whether that's lying, whether that's anger, whether that's lust, whatever it might be. And sometimes it can be a lifelong struggle against a particular sin or just a period of our Christian life where we are in a season where we are really having to battle in spiritual war for that particular sin. And just to stop and say, Lord, I acknowledge historically this has been the sin that has continually tripped me up. And so I commit. I can't commit for tomorrow. I can't commit for next week or next month. I commit today, Lord, to walk obediently with you in this area. And when that temptation comes up before my, into my life in the course of today, 
before that even happens, in the quietness of this room in my house as I start the day, I commit to you and choose to deal with it in this way. And you work the whole thing out with the Lord ahead of time so that when the temptation comes, we're not surprised by it and continue to fall over and over in it. So it's a very healthy thing for them to be very honest and very open about their past history with God and then to be very specific in prayer as a result of that. And the first thing that they um, spoke of here had to do with the giving of their daughters as wives to the people of the land. And so they said, we would not take, we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, to the Gentile nations, nor take their daughters as our sons. And so they began, uh, daughters for our sons. And so they begin with this whole issue of marriage. They committed as the law of God required that they would not intermarry with the Gentile nations. And it wasn't, this was not a, on racial grounds, but this was on religious grounds, uh, lest they would be pulled into the idolatry of the Gentile nations that were around them. And here you have parents who are making this commitment on behalf of their sons and of their daughters. And the reason that they're making the commitment and not the sons and daughters themselves is in those days the parents arranged the marriages. And so there was great temptation. When you were living uh, middle class, lower middle class, and here you've got this child and you've got an opportunity to marry that child into an idolatrous or a pagan or an unsaved family. And by virtue of that, all of your financial needs are going to be taken care of for life. You are going to be financially secure as a result of that in your whole family. Or you're going to gain some prestige or some honor by being associated with this name because they are, you know, known by this. So they have this kind of wealth and that kind of thing. So it's a real temptation. And it's not like this is, uh, okay, 2,500 years ago and we're not tempted by it today. How often you see uh, Christians where the Bible says that we are not to marry an unbeliever. It's very clear about that. There's a lot of reasons for that. But you'll see someone violate that because this guy, though he is unsaved, he will be, he is wealthy enough to take care of me for the rest of my life. Or this will put me into a family that's filled with this and this and that's what I want. And so even though the parents are making the decision here to say, okay, we are not going to intermingle in this way, in our culture it would be uh, younger single people that, that would have that choice because our parents don't marry us off in general. And, uh, and so this was the commitment uh, that, they, uh, that they made. And this whole reason this God set this whole thing up is that if every one of the Jews uh, took and married into these Gentile bloodlines, then how is God going to bring the Messiah into the world, having promised that he would bring the Messiah into the world through purely Jewish bloodlines? And a lot of times in, in the culture today, and even among Christians, we'll look and we'll say, well, everybody else is doing it. So I know the, the Word of God says no to that, but, you know, every other Christian I know or most of the Christians I know are, are doing that. But if everyone compromises the word of God, then how in the world is God's work going to get done? 
In this instance, how in the, where, through what bloodline was God going to bring the Savior of the world in the world if everyone disobeyed in this area? So if every Christian in the world had your relationship with the Lord, my relationship with the Lord, how healthy would the body of Christ be? And so it isn't a matter of what is everybody else doing or what they aren't doing. The issue is, what is me. What am I doing here? And, and, and making that, that's the basis of the decision. And then they went on. And they committed related to the Sabbath. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, which is a Saturday, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forgo the seventh year produce and the exacting of every debt. So they commit now to keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day, the Saturday, the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day following his six days of creation, not because he was tired, but to establish that as, a, as kind of a covenant with the children of Israel. It was to be a day that was to be set aside for spiritual things. So six days a week, it was like, all right, go out. I mean, be honest, be, be right, be upright in your business, but go out there and go crazy in your business and in your empire and providing for your family and all those things. That's great. But the one day a week is set aside to nurture your relationship with the Lord, and your walk with the Lord, and, and that was the way that it was uh, to be. And, of course, they forsook the Sabbath day, began selling and buying, and like everybody else, the whole thing in, in the world. And then they also committed to the seventh year of, uh, uh, of letting the land rest on the, the seventh year as God had commanded. And, and remember, these people are, in, they are, under, they are a part of the Persian Empire. They're being taxed to death in every direction. And yet they commit back to obeying God's law, even though this would be a hard thing to work the land for six years. God had promised that he would supply double for them in the six years so they could let the land rest on the seventh year and, and, then, uh, and, and have that be a year of rest. Well, that's, that's risky business when you're poor. That's risky business apart from God's promise to, that, that that's going to be taken care of. So this was tremendous faith that they were, that they were exhibiting here. And, and, and it was something that was reaching into uh, kind of their uh, pocketbook, their business side of things. It was a way of them saying to God, God, we're going to make sure that our business practices are under your direction as well. And that's one of the hardest things for people. Did I remember when I was a new Christian hearing about an old joke about a guy that got water baptized, kind of spur of the moment on the side of a river. And uh, they were doing a baptizing. He had come. He hadn't intended to be baptized. And so he goes up in his T-shirt. He takes his shoes off, and he's in his jeans and everything. And he goes into the river, and they dunk him, and he comes up. And uh, one of his friends noticed that he had his, still had his wallet in his pocket. He said, man, Ralph must have been really serious. He allowed his wallet to get baptized too. By the time you get people who are willing to obey God in the realm that affects us financially, then these are people who are being really serious about the things of the Lord. Uh, money is an interesting kind of barometer of our spirituality and one of the great challenges and revealers of our spirituality before God. And also he made, we made ordinance for ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel 
for the service of the house of our God. Historically, they had neglected supporting uh, the work of the Lord at the temple. And then also for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons and the set feasts, Uh, for the holy things and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of of our God. And so we're going to provide for all of these offerings uh, to be made uh, to the Lord as the the law of God required. They've been negligent in their history. And we cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for burning the wood offering, uh, for bringing the wood offering to the house of our God according to our Father's houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of our, the Lord our God as it is written in the law. The law required that the altar of a burnt offering would always have a fire in it that was burning perpetually. And so they commit now to making sure that they are supplying the wood for that to happen. And we make ordinances. Let me, it, 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 one other thing that's interesting, back in 33 before I leave it. They are in a place where... Uh, King Artaxerxes has sent Nehemiah to, uh, to Jerusalem. And he has given as a part of his decree to Nehemiah not only to rebuild the wall, but also from tax revenue to supply whatever was required for the offering of the offerings and the sacrifices to the Lord. And the people step in. And they could have just gone, well, hey, well, I mean, if... If the Persian Empire is picking up the dime, why in the world should we jump in and just keep playing? I mean, there's more money for all of us here. But they look at that and they say, no, I mean, it's wonderful that King Artaxerxes, we've been given that kind of favor by God with him. But God's word says that's our responsibility as God's people. And we're not going to depend on the unsaved world to make sure that we have what we need. That's an affront to our commitment to God. It's kind of like you go to Europe today and all these churches are empty and they're owned by the state, they're maintained by the state. It's an affront to the spiritual conditions in terms of Christianity in, in Europe. And there's a lot of great Christians that live in Europe, but nothing like what it once was. And so it was a bad sign and they stepped up and they said, whatever, we want to do what God says. doesn't matter what the government is saying that they will do. And we made ordinances, verse 35, to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of the trees year by year to the house of the Lord. So to bring the first fruits to the Lord as, as God required, he is worthy of what comes first into our life. To bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who ministered to the house of our God. Now don't be concerned if you're new to the Bible and you say, well, are you just bringing cattle in and stacking babies up or what? Well, uh, when you had a child, the first of everything was to be given to the Lord in recognition that everything that we have belongs to the Lord, has been given to him. And then we can enjoy the kind of the 90% after that in a way that we would never enjoy it if we didn't give him the first fruits. And, and so with children, you didn't just take and stack them up at the temple. I mean, who would want to be a priest or a Levite if you had thousands of little babies? Those of you who just have one or two, you know how hard it is. And, and so you would then redeem that child with a sacrifice and, and uh, acknowledging that that child is a gift from the Lord. And to bring the first fruits, verse 37, of our dough, 
our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storehouses of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And so the religious community, the, the Levites and the priests were supplied by all of this. And the priests, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the overall tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine and oil to the storehouses where the articles of the sanctuary are and where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. And here's a commitment they make. And we will not neglect the house of our God. And so a tenth of everything went, a tenth of the tenth, into the support of the priests and all for them to eat. And they make a commitment, we will not neglect the house of our God. By chapter 13, they will violate every single one of those commitments that they've made to God. There's reasons for it. And it's one of the reasons, the whole reason of the book of Nehemiah and why God sent Nehemiah among them. We'll talk about it uh, when we get there. Um, sometime. So we come to chapter 11 here now. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. So we remember back in chapter 7, they'd finished the wall around Jerusalem, but they hadn't been able to rebuild the fallen-down homes and buildings in the city. And it was a very, very large city for the number of people that were living in there. And Nehemiah looks at it and he says, Listen, God sent me to lead us in the building of a wall around Jerusalem, but... If, if, and he only wanted Jews to inhabit that city. He knew he didn't, he didn't come to build a wall around that city so the Ammonites could have a nice city to live in. God was reestablishing his people in the land. And so he recognized we do not have enough people in this city that we've built this wall around in order for it to be a viable city, for it to be a vibrant city, uh, for us to have enough of a population to make sure that it's a Jewish city. And so what in the world are they going to do? And so they come up, he, he comes up by the Spirit of God with what, what's been called the 10% solution on this. And so he looks at all of the different men uh, who are of the children of Israel in the southern part of Israel. That's where they were congregated. And he said, all right, one out of ten is going to, wherever you live in your surrounding villages and all of that, one of you, out of ten is going to relocate into this city so this can be established as a capital and a center for, for God's people. And so that was his solution to uh, having this repopulating uh, of the city for a strong Jewish Jerusalem. And how did they determine uh, the ten? Uh, they did it by the casting of lots, we're told, in verse 1. And so in those days, they, would, they had a means of casting lots, kind of drawing straws or whatever you know, we would call it the roll of a dice, not really that, but that kind of a thing. And what they did is they trusted God to direct that 
to identify now the men and their families that he wanted to be in the city. So we don't cast lots today as Christians because we have the Word of God to direct us and we have the Holy Spirit to direct us. But this was the means of, uh, in the Old Testament, God had promised that he would honor that methodology until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and so that was his means of identifying who he wanted to occupy the city. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So uh, the nine-tenths that were left out of inhabiting Jerusalem, they looked at the 10%, and it was really a great sacrifice. They're leaving very comfortable homes. They're leaving wonderful villages that they're living in. Yes, they're part of the Persian Empire, but they own land. They're prospering there, in, 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 relatively speaking, and they've got their own little place, and now they're going to leave all of that and now become a missionary to Jerusalem. So it would be kind of like, you know, we look at it and we don't see such a big deal of it, but it would be kind of like if God came to you and said, listen, I want you to leave everything you have, all of your roots here, everything that you own for the advancement of the kingdom of God, I am moving you over here. You leave all those relationships that you have, all those connections, the neighborhood, the whole deal, and you move over there. That's what he's asking them to do. So this is a really big commitment. And the nine-tenths recognize the commitment that it is, and so they bless them for willingly offering themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now, to give you some idea of how things can change in 2,500 years, (laughs) if you offer free real estate in Jerusalem today... Uh, you would have a line form around the world. It's some of the priciest real estate in the entire world, and I understand why. So uh, times have changed. So that, that would, have been, so it would have been a good time here to buy real estate in Jerusalem. And so these are the heads of the province uh, who dwelt in Jerusalem, and there is then a listing uh, of the, uh, those who dwelt in Jerusalem. And you notice in verse 4 uh, of the children of Judah that became a part of that, that committed to this, uh, volunteering in, in God's call. And then it lists in verse 7, uh, the, uh, those of the sons of Benjamin. From Judah, there came uh, 468 were chosen. From Benjamin, 928. Notice in verse 10, talks about the priests that were chosen for this, 1192. And then also in verse 15, it talks about the Levites that were listed and uh, and uh, uh, their number, 284. And then moreover, verse 19, the gatekeepers, 172, are numbered that were among them. It's interesting, God recognized them, the, com- the quiet commitment they had made. He knew their name, and, and he acknowledged it. And the total of all of those that had committed was 3,044 that were now going to establish their families in the city of Jerusalem in addition to those who already live there. And the rest of Israel, of the priests and Levites, were in all the cities of Judah. They got to live everyone in his inheritance, in their own lands. They lived in various uh, Judean towns. But the Nephinim, they dwelt in Ophel. You say, where in the world is Ophel? Ophel was a neighborhood in Jerusalem right at the base of Mount Moriah. And so it's that section of Jerusalem that was the closest to Mount Calvary. And it was the closest to where the temple was located for the offering of the sacrifices. And so because they offered service, they were servants to the Levites. 
in the work that was done there. It was a strategic place for them to be placed. And so uh, Zihar and Gishpah were over the Nethanim, and also the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mathaniah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers in charge of the service of the house of God. For it was the king's command concerning that them that a certain portion should be for singers, uh, a quota each day. And so there were singers that were uh, stationed there and, and supported because uh, King David wanted there to be worship associated with the temple. And again, as we've said before, you couldn't go down and buy uh, the DVD or put it on an iPod and put it on the sound system. Worship was either live or you didn't have it. So Pethaniah, the son of uh, Meshezabel, of the children of Zerah, the son of Judah, he was the king's deputy in all manners concerning the people. So he was kind of the emissary between Nehemiah and King Artaxerxes. That's how they stayed in communication with one another. So uh, Pethaniah was uh, a, a, a kind of a servant to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a servant, so to speak, uh, to King Artaxerxes. That's how the communication worked. They would give the message to him. He would do the traveling back and forth. And as for the villages, uh, with their fields, some of the children of Judah uh, dwelt in, and it lists some of the cities that the nine-tenths uh, of uh, the, the, that nine-tenths of the Jewish population that were of the children of Judah that they settled in. You see down in verse 31 also a listing of the villages that those that belonged to the children of a uh, tribe of Benjamin that they dwelt in. We look at that and we say, why Judah Benjamin? Judah Benjamin? Judah Benjamin? What about Zebulun? What about Naphtali? What about Asher? When we're talking about Jerusalem, we remember that the uh, two tribes that were given land, uh, the two tribes that were given the most significant land in the south, which is where Jerusalem is in Israel, was the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. So they had long historical ties uh, with, with that uh, part of Israel. And some of the Judean divisions of the Levites were in Benjamin. So for some reason, some of the Levites that were in the Judean cities were put over into the cities of Benjamin, maybe to even the numbers out. Now these are, as he comes now into uh, chapter 12 here, is a list of uh, the priests and the Levites who came up with uh, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the first one. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Zerubbabel came uh, from uh, uh, from the king in order to uh, from Babylonian captivity into Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the temple. And so there is the listing now of uh, the genealogy that Zerubbabel took. You remember perhaps before Zerubbabel left the Babylonian uh, empire to come and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem with the permission of the king, um, he uh, took all of the priests and the Levites and he established their legitimacy as priests and Levites uh, by looking at their genealogies to see whether they, they, were, they had a bloodline uh, and, and, and were legitimately qualified by bloodline in order to be priests and Levites. So he was very kind of meticulous about this because God's word is meticulous about it. And, and so he had established that thoroughly 
And so Nehemiah took, and he included now that listing of the priests and the Levites from the time of Zerubbabel, but also then the priests and the Levites that were serving in his time. And there's about a hundred-year difference time-wise between Nehemiah and also uh, Zerubbabel. But the whole idea that he's doing here in chapter 12, it's kind of a technical chapter, but basically it's just a communication to the whole Jewish world and also to us that at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the time of of Zerubbabel, they were very, very conscientious about who served uh, in the temple and about their bloodlines. And so basically, uh, chapter uh, 12, verses 1 through 26, uh, deals with that. In in verse 27, we then come to the section of of the uh, book that deals with the dedication of of the wall. And, and now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And so this is just going to be a shindig. It's just going to be a hullabaloo. Or whatever the equivalent word is today. Um, but now... We look and we say, well, why did it take so much time? They built, had this wall built, had it built for a while. Why did they wait so long for it to be dedicated? They waited till the people dedicated themselves to the Lord. So you have a wall that's built, a physical wall that's built around Jerusalem, but it's no good if the people aren't dedicated. If they don't hear the word of God of Ezra, then commit themselves to God and, and be obedient to God and all those things. So a dedicated wall without a dedicated people, it means nothing. And so the relationship with God has to always be greater than the work, like Pastor uh, Matt brought out uh, last Sunday night. Always has to be that way. And, and so here is this waiting until there's a commitment now, a dedication of the people to God that is the greatest strength in our life or the strength of a nation, God's people, and then now it's time to dedicate the physical wall. And so it was just to be a great uh, celebration. All of the Levites were brought out from all around uh, the nation to come into the city to be a part of it. The sons of the singers, they gathered together uh, from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of these people in the house of Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages all around, so they bring in the singers and... Uh, uh, so you got the Levites, and then the Levites who were singers, they came in. So, well, I'd either have to be a Levite. I could not be a Levite singer. You want to hear, don't you? No, you don't. I remember one time I was a new Christian. You know, you, 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 you what do you do? You become a new Christian. I'm a cable splicer for the phone company. How much singing do I do? I'm in a little Motown in the shower, all right? The privacy of my own home. So now you've got people singing out loud in the church and the whole thing, and here I'm supposed to be singing and all, so all right, I'll go ahead. After a while, you learn how to carry a tune. You really do. I mean, the, the worst of us, can, we can start to hit it enough but back then, I was just saying stuff. I don't know where. I don't know what pitch was or this or that. Or anything. I remember one guy said after service, he turned around to me and he said, Boy, you sure love the Lord, don't you? Sir? 
sing like that with a voice like that out loud, you've got to love God. No inhibitions. So you keep singing. You'll, you'll pick it up. The Lord loves all of it. And so the priests and the Levites, they purified themselves. They purified the people, the gates, and the walls. So ceremonial purification happening. And so I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall, all right, and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. And one went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate, and after them went uh, Hoshaiah and half of the uh, elders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, the scribe is then mentioned as the next name and then it lists uh, the other names. And they go along sounding horns and they're singing worship and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. But I want you to notice at the end of verse 31 that they, so he's going to have two choirs. They're going to begin at one point. Israel is kind of surrounded by a round this round wall. It's, not, it's, 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 it's kind of square, but it's kind of round too. So they begin at one particular place, and one is going to march counterclockwise uh, to the entrance of the temple, and the other is going to march clockwise to the temple. Then they're going to meet there and kind of bring the whole ceremony to an end. And, and so this first group of people, Ezra is a part of them. He's leading them. They're the group that kind of goes counterclockwise in all of it. Gigantic uh, Thanksgiving choir. And you notice that as they marched, they marched on the wall. You remember when Tobiah the Ammonite and Sanballat said, Look at these feeble Jews building this wall. If they get done with it, the... F- a fox will go up on the top of it and it'll fall apart. And now they've got two great choirs on the top of that wall. And they're going to celebrate God's faithfulness all the way around it, in spite of the mocking of their friends. And you remember when we saw that earlier in the book of Nehemiah, that device of the devil, the device of the enemy in our life, the mocking is The mocking of our faith in God is only effective if we allow it to be effective. And it's only effective if we believe it above what the Word of God says. You take any promise in your life tonight that you're holding on to, and the mocking of the circumstances, the mocking of people, the mocking of the devil, or whatever that comes against it, you will stand on top of that promise one day. It will have the final say in the situation. And so God is so God so takes that lie that was cast against his word that he gives them a wall that two great choirs can walk on the top of. And if you go to Jerusalem today, it's interesting because they do they have uncovered sections of Nehemiah's wall. And, it's, and we've talked about it before. It's just huge. I mean, it's from here to the end of the stage in terms of the top of it. Lots of people could walk on it. It's a magnificent thing. God is faithful to his promises. So you can imagine what an impressive sight this must have been to the enemies of the children of Israel. Not only are the walls built, but these two choirs are walking on the top of it. (laughs) Go, God, and too bad devil. And so they went in their direction, we're told in verse 38, 
that then the other Thanksgiving choir went in the opposite way, and I, that is, Nehemiah, was behind them, so he was a part of that procession with the half of the people, again, on the wall, and God is careful to let us know that. Ah. I just love it. Going past the tower of the ovens as far as the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim, above the old gate, and above the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate, and they stopped at the gate of the prison. And so the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I and half of the rulers with me, the priests that are listed there with the trumpets and and also uh, these fellows, the singers, sang loudly with uh, Jezariah, the director of them. And also that day they offered great sacrifice, rejoiced. And then notice this next phrase, for God had made them rejoice with joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. We've just, uh, here you've got these two Thanksgiving choirs. We've just celebrated Thanksgiving. It's wonderful to realize that God that we love and that we serve always gives us a reason for Thanksgiving in our life. He never fails to give us great reason for celebration, rejoicing, thanksgiving. And that's exactly what they did. God had made them. God had done it. God had given them the reason to rejoice with great uh, joy. And so the, the building of this wall, and they celebrated it, and they enjoyed it, and it's just a beautiful scene. And at that same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather uh, into them from the fields of the cities the portions uh, specified by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. So everybody is is pumped up here spiritually, and they want to make sure that that's taken care of. The Levites and the priests are supplied to continue this great ministry at the priests. Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the uh, purification according to the command of David and Solomon, his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel, And in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave the portions for the singers, the gatekeepers, that's the security detail, a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Israel. So the record during the time of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, the Levites and the priests, the gatekeepers, the singers, all of them were supplied uh, as the law of God required that they would be supplied to nurture the uh, spiritual dynamic and the spiritual life of, of the nation of Israel. Chapter 13. And on that day, there's a separation, a gap of time between uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13. So it talks about on that day, uh, Nehemiah had, uh, the day that it's talking about, Nehemiah had served as governor in uh, Jerusalem, in the area, the area of Jerusalem, for 12 years. And when the 12 years were up, Nehemiah went back to Persia 
continued his service to King Artaxerxes and how long he remained back in Persia, we don't know. Perhaps it was uh, one, two, three years, something of that kind of a, a vicinity of time. And uh, while he was gone, uh, while the cat's away, the mice will play, while he was gone, some very, very alarming changes took place in Judah, and there are very, very serious violations of the law uh, of Moses. And so when he came back, he discovered those violations, and this is chapter 13 as a record of Nehemiah's response uh, to those sins. And so on that day refers to his return now back into uh, Jerusalem. And on that day, they read the book of Moses. So the children of Israel, the word of God being read there. And as they read in the book of Moses, they read that section out of Deuteronomy that declared that, there, uh, that in it uh, was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but had hired uh, Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. And so there was, uh, they read that, all right, no Moabite, no Ammonite should ever come into the assembly of God. The reason was that both of those groups attempted to destroy the children of Israel during their journey from Egypt, their uh, pilgrimage from Egypt to the Promised Land. It wasn't just like a little skirmish or a little fist fight or something like that. They tried to eradicate the Jewish people from the face of the earth, the people that God had chosen to bring the Savior of the world into the world. If, if they had been successful in what they wanted to do with the Jewish people, we wouldn't have a Savior in the world today. And we wouldn't be Christians and have the relationship with God that we have. So what they did was super serious business. And so God says, those folks never come into the temple and they never worship among, among my people as, a, uh, as a, a consequence of what they did. And so having read that then uh, from the word of God, they then uh, obeyed that and, uh, and they separated themselves uh, from any foreigners that were engaged in that. And then so it was when they had heard the law that they separated all of the mixed multitude from uh, uh, Israel. Now we come to uh, Nehemiah cleaning up some messes that have been made in earnest, beginning in verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, the temple, was allied, allied with Tobiah. So here's the cast of characters. You've got Eliashib, who is the high priest. You've got Tobiah. Remember the characters, Sanballat and Tobiah, the Ammonite? Tobiah, the guy that had done everything that he could to keep the wall from being built around the city of Jerusalem, an enemy of the work of God. And these two families now were uh, aligned, uh, allied together in, in a marriage that had occurred in, in, the, uh, in the family of the priest. And so uh, because there was this family relationship, the high priest prepared for Tobiah a large room in, associated with the temple where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings of the priests. So here he is. 
he realizes, okay, uh, Nehemiah is gone, and so I'm going to go ahead and do what I want to do here. He waits for Nehemiah to go on, prepares a living quarter for the enemy of the things of God right there at the temple. It's bad enough that a living quarter was provided for Tobiah in the area of the temple, what, but what makes it even worse is that a priest is the one who let him in. He took a room that had just completely holy purposes and he gave it over that just to an unholy purpose. He took holy ground and he just willingly made it unholy. It's a decision that he had made. And here you have the enemies of God, the enemies of God's work being accommodated in God's house. It's just an affront even uh, to read it. And so it gets discovered in verse 6. But during this time, Nehemiah makes sure that we know that he was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And then after certain days, I obtained a leave from the king, and I came back to Jerusalem and discovered, oh, and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the very courts of the house of God. I mean, he's just in absolute shock that this has developed there in the very area of the temple. And the shock's recorded there in verse 8, and it grieved me bitterly. Oh boy, we'll see in a moment how much it did. This is a righteous anger that he has. He is incensed at what someone who calls himself one of God's children has done here in accommodating this wicked man there. And so it grieved me bitterly, and therefore I threw out all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Just went flying out. Toaster, microwave, mattress, clothes. Just all there is is you're standing in the alleyway, and the stuff is just flying out of the room until all of it is out. You say, what happened? Nehemiah's back. Praise the Lord. And he just cleaned house. And he didn't just clean all of that stuff out of that house. He said, then I commanded them to fumigate the room, to clean it, ceremonially and otherwise. This has been made into an unholy place. Let's make it holy once again. And I brought back into that room the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and with the frankincense. It reminds us certainly of Jesus and the cleansing of the temple where he took and overturned uh, the tables of the money changers and and those that were doing the selling of of the animals at an exorbitant price and uh, the Bible talking about the zeal of the Lord uh, filling Uh, Jesus in doing that from the Psalms. And here's that same kind of zeal in uh, Nehemiah. And I mean, he just, he doesn't call for a committee meeting. He doesn't ask, what does anybody else think she ought to do in this thing? It's obvious. He goes in and he just takes care of it. So imagine the things of God, the holy things of God being removed from these storerooms in order to accommodate Uh, this kind of an enemy of the things of God. Where's the discernment in the priesthood at that time? 
And, and so, of course, the application for our lives is very simple. The Bible says we are, what? Temple of the Holy Spirit. So we look at it and we say, all right. It's easy to pound on Eliashib, isn't it? But do I have a chamber given over? What's the old booklet that everybody ought to read? Uh, My Heart, God's Home. Is there a chamber in this temple that's given over to some Tobiah, to some darkness, to some sin, something that's unworthy of a life that's been bought by the blood of Christ? And it really speaks to us that what it reveals here is that there's an absence of the zeal of the Lord and the fear of God that marked uh, Nehemiah here, that immediately upon seeing that, this has got to be dealt with right now. Sometimes we just fall asleep to this, fall asleep to it, get comfortable with it, and then months and years go on in that condition. And so this is a a greater thing, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and a greater affront to give a a room in our house, uh, this temple uh, to the enemy. And I also, as he dealt with a second problem here, realized that the portions for the Levites hadn't been given to them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So now we know why there was an empty chamber to bring uh, Tobiah into. It's because the people were no, the rulers were no longer requiring of the people and the people were no longer doing it, though they had pro- promised just a few years earlier that we will not neglect the house of God. They stopped bringing in the first fruits. Of, of what God was blessing them with in order to support the priests and the Levites. And so the priests and the Levites, they got to eat. So they go back out in the fields and they start to hand, tend their flocks and, and tend their crops in order to keep food on the table. And then pretty soon, because of selfishness and, and covetousness and, and all, the work of the Lord is, is being uh, neglected. Covetousness and selfishness in the heart of, of God's people. And so when he realized that this had happened, his response, so I contended with the rulers. He got in their face. And he said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their place. And then all Judah then brought, praise the Lord for their obedience, once they had been rebuked, they brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and oil into the storehouse. And then to make sure it wouldn't happen again, Nehemiah said, I appointed his treasures over the storehouse. Uh, Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and of the Levites, uh, Pedaiah, and next him was uh, Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of uh, Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Fired everybody that was responsible for it ahead of time. He said, I'm going to bring in faithful men who will obey the word of God related to this. And then he said, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Something beautiful in Nehemiah right here. Again, it's these arrow prayers that he just keeps lifting up to the Lord. What he's doing, he's not going to win any popularity contest with what he's doing. He's our hero, as we read of him. But he's infuriating a lot of people with what he's doing here. And he's making a lot of people look bad, look very unspiritual and carnal, because they were. And so he's basically saying, God, I'm making a stand for you in all of this. 
And all I care about is not what anybody else thinks about me. All I care about is what you think about me and that one day I'll hear that well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And Lord, you know all of the hard work that has gone into not only the building of this wall, but the rebuilding of the nation spiritually. And Lord, he's calling on the Lord, Lord, honor what I'm doing here so that all of that isn't lost in one generation. One generation of carnal compromising uh, Christians. And so he cries it out to the Lord. And then the third thing that he correct was the profaning of the Sabbath in his absence. And in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They're working. They're making wine. These are Jews. And they're bringing in sheaves. They're harvesting. They're loading donkeys with wine and with grapes and figs and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day to sell. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. And men of Tyre, Gentiles, wasn't just the Jews, the gen- they, these rulers had allowed the doors to be open, and now they're allowing Gentiles to come in and sell their stuff on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the center of the spiritual life of the nation. It's an affront to him. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, and they brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and they sold them on the Sabbath day to the children of Judah in Jerusalem. It's like, and he shows up on the scene and it's like, this is not a big deal to anybody? So here's, here is a man who is not only having to confront the idolatry and the wickedness of the lost world, but he's having to make a stand against the carnality among God's people. And so he he looks at this thing and he says, I then contended with the nobles, the leaders of Judah, and I said to them, what evil is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It's just like, again, haven't we been here and done this? Didn't the whole thing that ended up in the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity begin with violating the Sabbath and then the Sabbath year and then this commandment and that commandment and this commandment and that commandment because a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Isn't that how it all began before? And now you're letting this whole cycle begin once again to be played out? Then you read about the hundreds of thousands of Jewish people that died in those battles, that went into captivity, and you're going to be at the helm of this nation and let that whole thing start all over again. And he's speaking some spiritual sense into there to them. And I like it talks about the fact that they were profaning the Sabbath. We talk about something being profane today as being extraordinary evil. He's so profane. That's not the Old Testament meaning of it. It means to make common. The Old Testament there was holy at the temple, and you walk one step out of that temple, and now you've got the common, the profane, the world. And so the prof- for something to become profane, and the Old Testament thinking was for it to become like everything else in the world. And he's saying, you have allowed the Sabbath day to become like every other day in the week. And he rebuked him for it. And so it was 
at the gates of Jerusalem as, I began, as it began to get dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut, and I charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath, and I posted some of my servants. The other guys, they're fired. I put some of my servants at the gates so no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now, the merchants and the sellers, they didn't take any of this seriously. They were sellers, merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares. They lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice, a couple of different Sabbaths. And then he warned them and he said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. I'll come down there and throttle you or have you arrested. And from that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. They just needed somebody to stand up. Settle the issue, and Nehemiah did that. And so I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. And again, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Again, he is making enemies, not just of the world, but God's people. He says, God, I'm doing this stuff because this is what your word tells me to do, but I've got to be candid with you. It looks like you and me right now on this. And he recognized that this is a big deal. We have to make, we have to, as Christians, we have to make very, very hard stands. Stands that are misunderstood, not just by people who don't know the Lord, but by people who claim to know the Lord. And it's not a fun place to be in. Your only company, the only person that understands in the middle of all of it is God. And Nehemiah got that. So he keeps praying to the Lord and then the next thing he rebuked was unbiblical marriages. Again, they're violating everything they had committed to just a few years earlier. And he said, in those days, I saw Jews who uh, had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And this is talking about men marrying women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And the result of this, forbidden by the law, and the result of this is that half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and couldn't even speak the language of Judah, Hebrew, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So this is, this is the way that it works. What Malachi uh, talked about one of the purposes of marriage is to raise up godly offspring. And the best, the best odds that you have of developing godly offspring is for godly parents, two people that know the Lord. But you have, if you have, and it's one of the reasons we're not to marry a non-Christian. So then you're on the same page in raising the children. And, and here they are, they take, and after a while, these kids can only speak the foreign language of their mother, and they can't speak the language of the Jews. How are you going to take them to the temple? How are you going to teach them about God? How are they going to come to know God? How are they going to be able to worship God without knowing the language in which all of that occurs? And yet that's what they did. And that's the tendency. It's always to, when you have, when you have this kind of a mixed kind of marriage like this, we've got a believer and an unbeliever. It's always easier to descend down. And the kids will have the natural tendency to follow the sinful practices of the unsaved partner. Now, if you're in that place tonight, 
you say, and a lot of times we can't help it as Christians because we both got married and we were both pagans. I got saved. He's not saved yet. She's not saved yet. And so what do I do? Well, you live your life in that circumstance and you pray. God will honor that. He understands the circumstance. And even if you've been disobedient to God in who you married, now what you do all isn't lost. You pray. But there is that sober recognition that it's a lot easier to pull someone down than to pull them up. And and then to marry like this puts our children then in that place. And our children mean the most to us in life, next to the Lord himself and our spouses. So it's a very, very bad situation to put children in because this is inevitably what happens. They trend toward the sin and the carnality. And so this is what Nehemiah did. He said, I contended with them and I cursed them. doesn't mean that he swore and used profanity. It means he called God's curses down on them for disobeying the word of God. And then he struck some of them and he pulled out their hair. Wow. Can we do that? No, we can't do that. So don't circle that in your Bible. Say, oh, this is very, very cool. I feel like doing this on a regular basis. Now, you remember when earlier when Ezra hit the same kind of situation, he pulled out his own hair and his own beard. Nehemiah is a different kind of breed of cat here. He comes in, he says, I didn't sin. So he struck them and he pulled out their hair. Sign of grieving. He said, I'll grieve for you. (laughs) And then he made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. And so he made them make this commitment and a vow to God, probably under the threat of being disfellowshipped among the Jewish community. And then he told them the seriousness of it. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? You're doing the same thing Solomon did. And yet among many nations, there was no king like him. I mean, the spiritual man, spiritual background, all those things. He was undone by doing this thing, who was beloved of his God. And God made him a king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. You think that sin's going to have a different end in your life than it had in Solomon or somebody else's? Learn from the book. And should we then hear of your doing of all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And then he cleans up the priesthood finally. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat. So the grandson of Jehoiada, the high priest, he marries into the family of Sanballat the Horonite, the other great opposer of the work of God, and, therefore, and, and Nehemiah said his response to that was, therefore I drove him from me. This guy was brought before him. You've got to understand, when Nehemiah is dealing with these people, he is dealing with people who know better. He's not dealing with pagans. He's not dealing with, with non-Christians. The Bible says that judgment begins in the house of God. These people knew better than what they were doing. And so he takes him. This guy comes up in front of him. He's married into that family in violation of the word of God. You've got this. It's penetrated the very priesthood, and he drove him from me. I don't know if you have a picture in your mind of Nehemiah chasing him down the road. But the idea is probably that he was uh, excommunicated from the priesthood because of what he did. Get him out of my sight guy that doesn't have any more sobriety than that. 
concerning his actions. And then he said, remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood. You've seen what they've done, Lord, and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. And thus I cleanse them of everything pagan, and I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bring the wood of offering and the first fruits at appointed times. He said, remember me, O my God, for good. And it's appropriate that the final words of Nehemiah would be prayer to the Lord to honor his, his, um, his zeal and his obedience to the Lord. Let me just close with one little comment related to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a very important character. We're going to leave him. You'll, you'll hit him in your devotional life every year. But we'll leave him for a long time on Sunday nights. But it, we, we see in him just this great strength of character, strong conviction. We see in him this holy zeal. You think about what he just did in chapter 13 and kind of the weakness and wimpy. It doesn't, it doesn't frighten me at all. I don't feel compelled in any way to explain away the actions of him or to talk it down or any of that kind of thing. The chapter is so refreshing to me because there's weakness in me. There's a person inside of me that wants to cave. It doesn't want to stand against all this stuff all of the time. It wants to take the mantle off of, of, of whatever and just go with the flow of it. And so, but you see this man and his relationship with the Lord, and in seeing him, we see the strength of character, the conviction, the holy zeal that is required to resist the natural tendency of all things in this fallen world to go downward. And that includes the things of the Lord. And it really, really requires a leader, whether that's in a home or in a workplace or wherever it is, God, that has put us. All of us are leaders in the body of Christ. We are not, we are not the tail. We are the head. We're to lead, the Bible says, in this, in this world. And, and so it requires a leader with character and resolve like Nehemiah to resist the pull. We look at that and we say, man, that is extraordinary. That is exactly what is needed in God's people in this hour, the body of Christ. So that we don't just slowly get boiled like the proverbial frog in the water. And then we cease to make stands, not only related to sin in the world, but related to sin the body of Christ and in the hardest place of all in our families and among friendships call themselves Christians. And so we look at the strength of Nehemiah and it's a beautiful thing. And the passage teaches us that godliness and holiness, it doesn't just happen. It has to be constantly maintained in our lives. It will always decline if it's left unattended. And thankfully, we have a greater than Nehemiah to help us in this, in the person of the Holy Spirit. So we look at that and we say, well, that, I'm very comfortable with what I see in Nehemiah in chapter 13. Or we can look at it and say, that is a million miles away 
from the commitment that I have to God. I would never make one of those stands in my life, push comes to shove, if the truth be made known. What needs to happen in my life? You see the zeal that he has for the temple, the things of God. Again, the Bible declares that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit as Christians. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so we look at Nehemiah here, this kind of passion, this kind of conviction, this kind of zeal, and if it makes us smack our lips at that kind of strength, then there's the realization that a greater than Nehemiah lives inside of each of us as Christians and the person of the Holy Spirit who is wanting to produce the same kind of character and express it through our lives as well. And isn't it wonderful to experience in our own lives our Nehemiah, the Holy Spirit inside of us, in the same way that we see Nehemiah working among God's people. We're, we're heading into compromise or we're heading into this situation or that situation and the Holy Spirit speaks to us and says, Wait a minute. You've been there, done that. You're not doing that again over my dead body or over the quenching of my Holy Spirit. And he's very, very good at keeping us in a good place and then on top of that, then nurturing this kind of a zeal for the things of the Lord. And so this isn't something that's just like a foreign deal that we just look at longingly. God, the Holy Spirit, does and will produce that within our lives. The important thing is to heed his voice as he speaks to us, situation by situation that we come into contact with in our lives. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this book.